should live in the light of it. Mark 9, verse 30, begins this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. What an unexpected word you had for the disciples. May we be amazed by the unexpected word you give us of your gospel. Would you show us the contradictory and unusual nature of your gospel today that we might embrace it and live a new life? God, and what a different gospel ethic you give those who believe your gospel. You show us that we are not to live as the greatest. We are not to think of ourselves as kings over all, but as servants under all. Lord God, would you make us servants? Would you make us the lowest of all people? Would you make us ones who take care of little children? Not for our namesake, not for our glory, but just to be servants. God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Christ and his love for us. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Life does not always turn out the way we would expect. Rather, most of the times, life turns out to be unexpecting, or we are surprised by what takes place in life. A great example of this is the fact that I am standing before you this morning in this pulpit. And I am here in this pulpit, and last time I checked, this is Long Run Baptist Church, and this is a Christian church which is very unusual to 13-year-old Robert, 14-year-old Robert, 15-year-old Robert, 16-year-old Robert, 17-year-old Robert. What is taking place right now, the fact that I am opening up the Bible and I am preaching the word of God to you was unexpected. If you would have asked a younger me in my day, do you foresee yourself becoming a pastor or a preacher? I would have told you, I think I have a better shot of becoming a PGA golfer than being a Baptist pastor. Now, for some of you, that's really relevant because some of you saw my skills out on the golf course this past weekend. And you can just ask Steve, and fortunately, Daryl's not here. But I'll just say this, pun intended, they were subpar. One of the men just was recovering from back surgery, and he outdid me on the golf course. And so we only lasted nine holes. But I say that to just say, this is the last place I would have expected myself to be. Or maybe to put a different example is I would have said, I would probably rather be a figure skater than be a Baptist pastor, right? And I mean, look at me. I'm six foot two, 220 pounds. Could you imagine me out there? I'd break every bone in my body. But sometimes that's how the Lord works. 
and it is how the Lord worked in my case. And I imagine it's probably how the Lord has worked in your case. But it's actually at the very center of the gospel as well. The gospel at its very heart, even though we don't realize it because we assume the truths of the gospel too often than actually read about them, is that it's an unexpected gospel. And that's what we're going to see presented here in this text first to us, is that the gospel is unexpected. But it's not just that the gospel is unexpected, it's also that the Christian life, or we could say the gospel life, is also unexpected. It's not what we would think it would be. And so I would invite you today to look at our Bibles with me and to look at the text of Scripture and to see the unexpected gospel, the unexpected Christ, but then also to see the unexpected gospel life and the difference it has from the life that we often think we should live or would want to live. So Mark 9, verses 30 through 32, we will see the unexpected gospel. Look at verses 30 through 32 with me if you would. It begins with Jesus, and he is passing by Galilee. He is just leaving a crowd in an encounter where he healed a man. And it says, he did not want anyone to know. That's the end of verse 30. Now, we have seen this come up about Jesus many a time as he is traveling or he is leaving a miracle. But what it's trying to tell us is Jesus is not going to let the crowds and he's not going to let the people who are following him anoint him king, not going to let them anoint him Messiah. Because after the crowds have just seen him perform this miracle, they've seen him heal a man who was diseased because of a demon that was causing him to foam and to shake and to be sick, they want to put him as king. They want to make him a royal figure. And we would think, well, what's wrong with that? Jesus is king. Jesus is the God of all the earth. Shouldn't he be seen as king? Shouldn't he be recognized as Lord? And shouldn't he be anointed Messiah right there and everybody should bow to him? Well, everybody will bow to Jesus. Make no doubt about it, as Philippians 2 tells us, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is true. It happens in a very unexpected way. The reason why Jesus is leaving the crowd and he doesn't want the crowd to know is because Jesus is going to reveal to a select few people how he is actually going to be the Messiah, how he's going to be the Lord, how he's going to be king in an unexpected way, even though it's not unexpected to us. Listen to verse 31. This is how it's going to take place. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man, it's a really important word right there, the son of man, it's really important in the Old Testament, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And then it says in verse 32 that the disciples do not know what to make of this and they do not understand what Jesus was talking about. Now we will get to the unexpected nature of this text in a moment, but first I just want to focus on what Jesus is talking about. It's interesting that in the last two chapters, Mark 8 and now in Mark 9, then also in the chapter to come, Mark 10, Jesus has been delivering this message of one who is going to die by crucifixion. He is going to be handed over to the chief priests, but then he is also going to be raised again from the dead. And if you scan through the chapters before Mark 8, you don't hear reference of this. You don't hear news about his death. You don't hear news about his resurrection. Instead, what you see is you see Jesus going around performing miracles, doing teachings, 
calling the disciples, leading them and showing him ministry. But here in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, we're going to see reference to it three and potentially even four times. Scholars debate on the fourth one. But whatever case it is, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to speak in hyperbole in some sense. He's trying to use repetition to impress on us a point. And the point is something like this. At the heart of the gospel, at the heart of why Jesus Christ came was this very message. Verse 31, that the Son of Man is going to come and that he is going to be betrayed, handed into the hands of men and he's going to be killed but then he is going to rise up again from the dead. And you say, what's the deal? What's the big deal? Jesus wants us to get that this message is the heart of Christianity and he's trying to impress it upon us. He's like my wife who tries to help me to remember things. She'll send me a text message, leave me a voicemail, put a note on the door, even talk to me about it so I'm able to remember something. And Jesus wants to over and over again say emphatically, hey, you need to get this. Because it's at the heart of the gospel. And I want us to get this. Because too often, I think, we lose what is at the actual center, the very focus of the gospel. And I think the reason Mark is emphasizing right here is because he's thinking to his audience, you could lose it too. How could you lose it? The same way many people do. It was not long ago that I was talking to a man who was over here living in Flat Rock Ridge and we were talking about Christianity and I was asking him, what do you think the gospel is about? He said he knew about Christianity, he knew about the gospels and so I was like, okay, what do you think the message of the gospel is? And he said this, and this isn't a wrong Christian message, this is a Christian message, what he's about to say but it's not at the heart of the gospel. He said, I think at the heart of the gospel, it's about loving your neighbor. That's a great thing. Loving your neighbor is a wonderful thing. It's actually the second greatest command in all the Bible. But what that man said is not what Jesus says right here emphatically where he's trying to say, this is the heart of the gospel. And I don't think what took place, that one encounter, is an anomaly among Christians. Rather, it is far too often, and it actually happened again this week where I ran into some teenagers who were saying they were Christians as well, and they told me that the Christian life was about being good and kind and and helping people, and that's good, right? Those things are good. Those things matter. But what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to show you that those are not the gospel. Yes, Jesus is teaching, the teaching of the parables back in Mark 4, those are important. Yes, Jesus raising people from the dead, Those are important. Yes, Jesus calling the disciples to himself that they will be with him, that he will train them up and send them out, those are important. Yes, Jesus being kind to the people who were not cared for by the world, those are important. But they are not at the heart of the gospel. Good works, loving people, things that have been mentioned are not at the heart of the gospel. What makes someone a Christian and what makes someone not a Christian is this message and whether you believe it or not. Being a Christian is not based upon what you do. It's based upon this message and whether you actually believe it. So what is the gospel about? 
The gospel is a message that every single person in here and every single person on all the face of this earth is blemished and with sin and tarnished so much so that they cannot actually get in right standing with God. Every single one of us, as Romans talks about, has fallen short of the glory of God. Every person. And the only hope that we have is that this one, the Son of Man, who it takes, talks about in the text, will come in and live his life without blemish, like we have lived with blemishes, without sin, like we have committed sin, and done no evil in his life at all. But then he went to the cross because he was taken there by evil men. And you know who those evil men were who took him there? It was not just Romans. It was not just Jews. It was you and it was me. We took Jesus to the cross. But Jesus did not end his gospel message there. Jesus said, I'm greater than the cross. And he went down into the grave and then he rose again from the dead so that he might say that sin is defeated. Death is no more. And for everyone who I have died for, they might have life. The gospel message is not a message of do better, be better, love people. Those are ramifications, and those are entailments. They matter. If you don't love people, you may not actually understand the gospel message. But the gospel message is not love people. The gospel message is not be kind. The gospel message is believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who is pure, holy, and blameless. And Mark wants to implant it on our minds. He's kind of, remind us, remind us, remind us, because I think they don't get it. And it's too sad and too often that we don't get it. We could ask thousands of professing Christians what the gospel is and get thousands of answers. And Mark just wants to say, this is what it is. This is it. Right here. Son of man, handed over, going to be crucified for your sins and raised from the dead so that you might have life. And I would just like to invite you today, if you're someone who's sitting here thinking, you know, I've had it mixed up. I've always thought the gospel message was be better, do better, love people. And I didn't actually recognize that it was about the forgiveness of my sins and how Jesus Christ alone can accomplish that. I would invite you to believe that gospel message today, to trust in that good news. Because you could leave here and you could say, oh, I'm just gonna keep loving people. And that's great. It's great, but that doesn't save. Now the disciples, in verse 32 you see, they don't get it. They're thinking, son of man, crucified, risen from the dead? That makes no sense. Now this is the part in the passage where usually when preachers and pastors are reading this, they begin to shame the disciples for not understanding and for missing it. But I just want to say, I think there's really good reason for why they don't understand it. And I think if I was in their context and I knew the things that they knew about the Son of Man, I would miss it too. I would have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Because for these guys, when they hear about the Son of Man, they think Old Testament Son of Man. And when we think about Old Testament Son of Man, we think about one of the pinnacle passages. I've referenced it before in our time, but I want us to look at it today. It's Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. And I just want you to think about what Jesus is saying about the Son of Man, handed into the hands of evil men, going to be crucified, and is going to have to rise again from the dead. 
I just want you to think about, does that match up with what Daniel 7 was saying about the Son of Man? Because if the disciples are hearing, hey, Son of Man's going to die, they're thinking, wait, Daniel 7, did that say that? Here's what Daniel 7 says, and I want you to just think about this passage. Three things, I really want you to see it. Daniel 7 begins this, verse 13. I saw in night visions, and behold, and here's the name, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days is God, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now that's son of man, this prophesied figure, the Messiah from the Old Testament. He's coming before God, and he's going to get something from God. Listen to what he's going to get. And you should be thinking, wait, Jesus just said the Son of Man was going to get a cross. So you should be thinking, maybe it's going to be a cross. Listen. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Did you hear that? Son of Man, what is he getting? Dominion. I don't even really know what a dominion is. I think it's just a rule over a bunch of land, okay? It's like authority that you're going to have. God gave humanity all dominion in Genesis 1 over all the earth, right? So that gives you a picture of it, right? But he's going to give him dominion, glory, which means he's going to get praise, he's going to get honored, he's going to get worshiped, and he's going to get a kingdom, right? Now we should be asking, what kind of dominion is this? And who's he going to get glory from? And how mighty is this kingdom going to be? Listen to it. That all peoples, all peoples, nations, and languages He's just trying to emphatically impress against once upon to just say every single person on all humanity is going to bow down and be under this guy's kingdom. But you should ask, well, is his kingdom going to end? Is it ever going to stop? No. Listen to it. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So let's just think about Daniel 7, and then we'll come back to Mark 9 in a moment. Daniel 7 is saying about the Son of Man, he's going to have this dominion, this kingdom over every single person, over all the earth, and he's going to rule for all eternity. Now think about that, and just try to like even get a, like a, a mental picture of what that would look like. It's almost unfathomable to think about that rule and that might and that power. No empire has ever ruled like the Son of Man. I think it's fair to say when they hear the Son of Man's going to come, they're thinking castles, military, army, forces, like great crowns, lots of, lots of food. Like it's going to be awesome. But then remember, go back to Mark 9. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed into the hands of evil men. He's going to die, and he's going to have to rise again. I just want to say, sometimes when pastors, they begin to talk about the disciples, and they say, oh, these guys are so foolish, and they were slow to understand the scriptures. That's what Luke says. I would just say, I would be too. I'd be thinking, I'm looking for a kingdom. Where's it at? And this guy's over here talking about crosses. Like, who in their right mind puts Daniel 7 next to a cross? And we think, well, that's how it works. No, it doesn't. Who in here thinks of an elite athlete who competed their whole career in a wheelchair? Does anybody? No, I doubt it. Does anybody in here think of a CEO who eats out every night in a dumpster? 
No, I doubt it. Does anybody in here think about a great medical doctor who has a great and severe mental disorder? No, I doubt it. These two things are great contrasts, great opposites, and we never put them together. The disciples would be confused for a good reason, and we would be confused too. Because what I'm trying to impress upon you is this gospel of Jesus Christ that we assume so much, we just say, oh yeah, the gospel, Jesus Christ died to forgive us of our sins, that's not expected. That makes no sense to the world. Makes no sense to them. And I just want to say this. Because of this, we should learn from the disciples something. And I think that's humility when, our com- when we come to our Bibles. We should learn to be humble in this sense. Amen. We don't get everything. The disciples right here, who were raised in a Judeo world, where they would know the Old Testament scriptures, which are all talking about Jesus, didn't get it. And us who, I mean, we live in the Bible Belt, but the Bible Belt's deteriorating. And, you know, honestly, I could be wrong on this, but I think very little people actually genuinely read and study their Bible. Why would we get it? I mean, I think Peter's way more knowledgeable than I am. And he's sitting here confused like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Cross and dominions forever? Makes no sense. What I want to commend to you, us, in light of these disciples who don't have it quite figured out, is maybe we don't. And what I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to say there's nothing we don't have figured out. Yes, we have the truths of the gospel revealed to us, and yes, we understand who Jesus is, and yes, we understand the fundamental truths of Christianity. But there are many things as we study the scriptures that we should be humble about and say, maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't have it all figured out. Maybe we need to be back like the man before in our last passage when the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. And one thing, and I'll just say this first, I'm preaching myself right now. If any of you guys have ever kind of like stirred me up before, you know I can get really passionate and really going, right? Um, And I'm not saying don't get passionate. Be concerned about the Bible. Love the truths of the Bible. But be able to say, hey, we can think differently. And this also breathes into something else. So the first thing is humility. I want a humility when we read the Bible. Because we're not God. We don't know everything. But I also want a charity. I want a charity towards other people. And I want to say a charity does not mean you agree with everybody. The world today, what it preaches about charities, it says, oh yeah, everybody's opinions are equal and they're equally right. That's not charity. What charity I'm talking about is you just say, hey, you could be right. I could be wrong. But I'm not going to say you're right. And that's okay. Not everybody's right. And we're not saying everybody's right. But there's a level of humility when we come to the Bible that we should have. And a level of charity for brothers and sisters. Now I want to make just one qualification of this. I'm not saying we're allowing heresy in here. I'm not saying that if a Unitarian, which is a person that doesn't believe in the Trinity, can join, a, join as a long-run member. Like that's, that's not happening. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you cannot be a member of a long-run Baptist church. That's not a Christian view. That's not a Christian view. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is with issues that are outside of these fundamental issues like Trinity, Incarnation, Gospel, we should be charitable. And even if you know, we disagree on some things, we should be able to at least listen. In a world today that doesn't listen to anybody, we, the church, should be able to listen. Because we should take the disciples as an example to just say, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we missed some things, okay? 
But I'm not saying don't search the scriptures. I'm not saying be dispassionate. If there's questions about what I'm saying, please talk to me about it afterwards. But I just even want to think about an example that I saw this last week. This last week, I got a call from a brother in our church, and he just mentioned to me, he said, you know, I disagree with you about um, a position you take on an issue. And through the conversation, we found out that we actually didn't disagree on the position. But he said, and after as soon as he said that, he said, I just want you to know, it's not a fundamental issue, and I just want to let you know I disagree, but I'll still stick around, and, I'll, and, and, and I'm going to follow you. And I appreciated his transparency to tell me that, his humility to say, you know, hey, you think one way, I think another way. And his charity in saying, you know, it's okay. Instead, what we do is we often get really dogmatic about these issues. And so, if the disciples don't understand, maybe we shouldn't. And so what are we looking at? We're looking at an unexpected gospel that confounds our understanding, that confounds our imaginations and should humble us as we come to it. But it's not just that the gospel confounds our intellectual cognition, our ability to understand. It also confounds and it goes, it abounds what we think the gospel life would look like. And what we're going to see in these next few verses of 33 through 37 is that an intellectual comprehension of the gospel is always paired with an ethical comprehension of the gospel. What do you mean by that, Brother Robert? What I mean by this is to understand the gospel, it's not just intellect. It's not just theological. It's not just that you understand some truths. No, what actually has to begin to happen is a life change. And actually, if you understand the gospel, it'll do something to you. And the disciples, because they haven't figured out the gospel, one, intellectually, they also haven't figured it out ethically and morally. And you're going to notice the thing that's going to get in the way of their true understanding of the gospel is not just the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, that's confusing in its own right. But it's actually their pride. It's their sin that stands in the way of them understanding the gospel. And some of you, this is what exactly will stand in the way of you understanding the gospel. Is it will not just be, I don't get that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. It might also be that you love your sin. That you love pride. Because that's what's getting in the way of these disciples. Listen to verses 33 and 34 with me. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so Jesus is walking along the way, and he sees this conversation that's happening to his disciples, but you know, they're kind of like kids. They're whispering to one another, like, I taught high school. This is what high schoolers would always do in the middle of class when they don't want the teacher to hear right. But as soon as you ask them, hey, what are you guys talking about over there? Uh, nothing. They're quiet, right? They're like, like, they don't know what to say, right? The disciples know they've been caught. And the disciples are ashamed of what they were just discussing because they know what they were discussing was prideful. They know what they were discussing was arrogant. And thankfully, Mark puts it in here, we would have no idea what it is. But Mark tells us what they were discussing is who was going to be the greatest. 
Now, what does he mean who is going to be the greatest? Well, I think what happened among the disciples is they heard that Son of Man reference and they remembered Daniel 7 and they thought about the kingdom and all its power and all of its glory and they said, I'm going to have a kingdom in that kingdom. I'm going to have a castle among Jesus' glory. I wonder how glorious I'll be, Peter probably said. And James was probably thinking, yeah, maybe I'll get my own tracts of land. And Bartholomew was probably thinking, man, I just hope I get a yard or something like that in that dominion, that kingdom, right? The disciples, they hear reference about the kingdom, and the first thing they begin to think about is themselves. They begin to think about who's going to be the greatest among us. And how are we going to get what we want out of this kingdom? Their aspirations are self-greatness, approval, and glory. And we look at this oftentimes and we think, oh, foolish disciples. Oh, foolish. And you can see right here, the reason they can't understand what Jesus was talking about in the first place is because of their pride. But oh, how this permeates us. How often it is that we want to be the greatest in society. We want to be the greatest at our jobs. We want to be greatest. We want to be recognized. We want glory in the things we do. As an example, which one would you rather be? Would you rather be a CEO of a company or the janitor of a company? Would you rather be the quarterback or would you rather be the water boy? Would you rather be, in this instance, the king or would you rather be the peasant? This past week, I had to face this truth and this reality um, very clearly in my life. On Thursday, that's the day I usually do my sermon prep, and I usually take all day um, to do it. And some of you are thinking, man, he takes all day, and this is what we're getting out of it. Sorry. Just kidding. But I, t- but I, but I work on it like all day, and I'm like very intense, and I'm like really into it, right? And it's getting around like 11 o'clock, 11.30, and I'm like really like in my study. Like I've read the text multiple times. I've studied it. I'm reading my commentaries. I'm about finished with that. And I get this call. I get this call from Ashley. And she says, hey, it's been kind of a rough day. Uh, the kids are um, just a lot to handle right now. Can you please just come home and help me with lunch and help put them down for a nap? Now, you know, me being like the saintly person I am, you know, of course, I was just like, oh, of course, I'll be there, right? You know what happened. In my heart, I thought, what? Is this Thursday? Is this sermon prep day? And I'm doing a great work over here, <laughs> right? You know, and I'm, and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, and I'm the pastor, I'm the preacher, like, this is what I'm called to do, right? I'm doing greatness in this thing, right? Like, oh, man, so silly, right? And it, it comes to my mind, I'm just like, how dare you infringe upon my time, right? Because what do I want? I want greatness. I want to be made much of. I want to be recognized. I want to be the highest esteemed, right? And I don't want to be coming home, taking care of a kid's lunch, and then putting them down and changing diapers. And so, you know, I didn't say that, right? But I said, I, I, I said, I said like, all right, 20 minutes. Just give me 20 minutes. But those of you who know who have had kids, you know 20 minutes waiting for lunchtime and then nap, that's an eternity. But anyway, she bargains. My wife is gracious with me, incredibly gracious with me. She says, 20 minutes, right? And so I'm studying this passage right here, right? And then I come to verse 35. Just imagine this, this whole scene. Jesus calls the disciples to him and he says, 
if anyone would be first, so if anyone's going to be number one, if anyone's going to deliver a really good sermon, what do you got to do? Invest a lot of time, worry about yourself, worry about the way you're going to deliver? No. He must be the least of all and a servant of all. Oh, man. It hit me. Just as soon as I was reading it, just as soon as I was thinking about it, Jesus didn't call me to be self-centered. Jesus didn't call me to build my kingdom here at Long Run to sound the finest. Jesus called me to be a servant. And praise the Lord for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that just said, Robert, turn off your phone right now and turn off your timer and go home. Go help out with lunch. Go help out put the kids to bed. Because Jesus is not looking for someone to build his kingdom. He's going to build his kingdom. Jesus is looking for servants. Jesus is looking for slaves. Jesus is not looking for the person who thinks, oh yeah, I'm going to go be the best. Sometimes I think when we get to heaven, we think we're going to get there and we're going to be like looking up to all these like superstars in church history, kind of like people like Billy Graham, Martin Luther, Augustine, right? And we're going to be like, oh yeah, those guys, they're the greatest. They're the greatest in the kingdom. I don't think so though. I think when we get there, we'll be really surprised to hear that the greatest in the kingdom, and there is a greatest, like I'll talk about, there is a greatest. And the greatest is definitely Jesus. But what we'll be really surprised to see when we get to the greatest is it's probably going to be someone who never preached, never taught, wasn't well known, maybe in a small church, maybe in a big church, I don't know. Probably, you know, a lady who just served was in children's ministry every week, was prepping service, was helping out with meal ministries. If there was ever a meal train that was needed, she was the one to organize it and get everybody on board. And it was thankless, and nobody acknowledged her. But that's what Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God is like. And there will be a greatest in there. It's just not going to be the people we think it's going to be. The unexpected ethic of the kingdom or the unexpected gospel life is this. The greatest of all is going to be the least of all. And the least of all is going to be a servant of all. And Jesus shows us this in the rest of the text. What Jesus does, and I'm just going to tell you how it all goes down, is Jesus then, after telling his disciples this, goes and picks up a young child. Now, most of the time we hear this and we think, oh, how cute, that's so nice, Jesus. He loved kids so much. That's not why he's doing this. Jesus goes and picks up the child and he brings them among them and he says, whoever would accept this child will accept me and whoever accepts me also accepts the one who sent me. Now, what's the point of what he's doing? It's not to say that kids are nice and Jesus really loved kids. Jesus does love kids. Don't get that wrong. In the society at this point, what was taking place is taking care of children, that was seen as a really lowly job, especially for a man. This was the reality, the society in his day. It's not sexist. But um, women were often the ones who were going to be taking care of the children. And if a man was going to be taking care of the children, he would be looked down upon in his day. It's kind of still common in our day, right? And if the woman wasn't able to take care of the child, you know who was going to take care of the child? It wasn't going to be the man. It was going to be a slave. He passed it along, right? But then think about Jesus. Jesus isn't just a man. 
Like Jesus is a well-known leader at this time. One who's to be esteemed, one who's to be acknowledged, one who's to be praised, right? He's a rabbi, teacher. That's a term of respect. And Jesus says, I'm going to bypass the man who's too arrogant to go and take care of the child. I'm going to bypass the woman who is usually the one doing it. And I'm going to bypass the slave who is the lowest of all people. And I'm going to show you what it looks like to be least of all. The point of Jesus taking up the child is not to get a picture of Jesus on the wall taking care of a child and now we all look at it and think that's a good picture. The point is to say, look at how low Jesus goes. To his society, they would say, like, we don't think this. We, we don't think this when we hear the story. But his society, if there was a Jew watching it, he would think, not how cute, how disgusting. Someone would be asking Jesus, why are you doing that, Jesus? You're Lord, you're rabbi. Like, why, why are you helping this child? And Jesus just wants to say, you think this is low? Remember what I just talked about. The Son of Man will be handed over to evil men and be crucified. Because the lowest that Jesus is going to go in the societal status is not even just picking up a child, but it's going to be going to the place where there's the greatest shame, the greatest despair, the greatest abandonment, the greatest pain. And that is the cross. The cross of the kingdom represents greatness. But oh, how it did not look like greatness to them. And the unexpected ethic, the unexpected gospel life is that if we're going to be great, and I'm going to tell you, I want you to be great, I want to be great, we need to be least of all and a servant of all. So application. What does that look like? I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what it looks like in all of your lives. But all of you can think of right now that task that you do not want to do or that thing that you will not get any acknowledgement if you do it, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's at home. For me, this probably looks like me taking half a day to let Ashley go and have a day and me take care of the kids. Anybody going to acknowledge that? No. Anybody going to look at that and say, wow, how great, how grand, right? No. Or maybe it's here at church. You know who the superstars of this church are? Um, It's kind of ironic that we didn't have any um, here today. We didn't have any kids, but like the superstars? It's not here who's preaching on this pulpit. It's those people who go back there every day and wrangle those kids around for 45 minutes if the preacher goes long. And some of us say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's really painful to hear. And it's painful to hear because it's my heart, and I know my heart. I don't want to be a servant. But that's what God's called us to do, and he's called us to do it because it's what he's done. It's what Jesus Christ, who was the fittest, the greatest, Quote of Philippians 2 earlier to you, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we think, yeah, I'm too high to go do servant's work like that. Who are we? Who am I? The gospel is not expected, it's rather unexpected. It did not come originally with a crown, it came instead with a cross. Now that does lead to a crown. But the gospel in our life It begins first with the cross. It begins first with us saying, we're going to be servants of all. 
And no matter what that position is, we'll take it. Because Jesus was a servant of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have served us because we have been so unfaithful to you. We thank that you love us and that you care for us more than we ever care for anyone else. I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict all of us to be servants. You would make all the servants of one another, giving up our lives for one another, and that we would reflect Jesus, who is the Son of Man, who took up his cross for us. May we do the same. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. This time we'll have a time to respond, but if any of you would